0: So uh, tonight, um, I'm going to talk to you about something, and uh, I think we've got our our title up here. We can go ahead and put the title up there. Uh, The name of the message tonight is Game Film. Game film, and way back in the glory days of Mike Taramano, I played high school football. And let me tell you something: I was a star. I am totally kidding. So uh, the position I played was left behind. Uh, when the bus went to the away games, I was left behind. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So no, it was I was certainly not the glory days, but I did play high school football. And one of the things about high school football—this does happen also at the college level, um, but but mainly it's it's a thing at the high school level—is teams will exchange game film. And essentially what I mean is that every uh, Saturday and Sunday, Saturday or Sunday kind of around the country, as high school coaches get together in some way and they exchange game film, uh, and the idea is essentially um, to allow the other team to see what you're doing in your game. So um, it used to be, so if you're under the age of maybe 20 in here or 15, you know, before Blu-ray, there was this thing called DVD, you know, and if you're under the age of 25, before DVD, there was this thing called VHS, right? And so the coaches would get together and they would swap them. I'm I'm sure today that it's all done, you know, somehow on the internet, there's probably websites and they just swap it or email it or something like that. But anyway, either way, this this notion, this thing happens. It's kind of a a gentleman's agreement where um, I would go to my opponent, I would give them films from our games and, and I would get films from their games and we would spend the week then preparing, for our opponent, right? The idea is you could see what kind of offense. So, you know, Seneca and Walhalla, they, they would, they'll swap game films, and you'll be able to see what kind of offense or plays Seneca is running, and you'll be able to see what kind of defense Walhalla might set up or whatever. And so uh, game film is, is swapped for you to prepare for what the enemy is going to do. And I think this book, one of the reasons why God put together this book is for the same reason. There are many demonstrations, examples of what the enemy does. And I think God put this book together to show us some of his tactics, right? So the title of my message tonight is Game Film. Alex, you prayed with me before. Would you pray um, as we go into this message? We pray in Jesus, holy name, name Amen. Thank you. So typically, of course, at this point, most good preachers, they'd have you stand and I'd read some scripture, but the problem is is that tonight, I'm gonna to go through about four chapters in Isaiah. So um, I'm not gonna you, have you stand and listen to me read four chapters because that would be the end of our time together and I'd be sending you home. So instead, what I'm gonna kind of do is, is kind of navigate through it. And with pastor's permission, I am going to give you permission, so to speak, to not necessarily try to follow along um, through Isaiah. You're welcome to, but we're obviously gonna put it, we're gonna put it on the screen for obvious reasons because I'm gonna go through a little bit of 36, then jump to 37, kind of go through 38 and what I don't want is for you to be doing this, doing this, doing this, trying to take notes and, and trying to keep up, you know what I'm saying? So, so Joey's going to be your page turner tonight, so to speak, right? So just imagine he's there with you in the pew and he will be turning your page for you. Um, so you're welcome just to, to kind of watch what's going on on the screen. So this idea of game film and this idea about having a, a view or, or, or getting a, an insight into the enemy's tactics. And I, I want to give you an example, uh, Genesis chapter three, it's one of my favorite chapters uh, in the Bible. There is so much to learn out of Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is the fall of man. This is the, the serpent and the fruit and Eve and all of this. And this is where Adam is blaming God for all of his problems. But that's a different, different story, a different lesson about how men can be. And, uh, and so in Genesis chapter 3, we get a glimpse into one of the enemy's tactics. And so um, what happens is when the serpent approaches Eve, he starts the conversation by saying, did God really say, in fact, uh, my wife, Terry, she's, uh, she's been learning this and teaching a lot of this here lately uh, about this phrase, did God really say, because one of the ways that the serpent, he tries to get Eve to kind of go along with him is he says, okay, okay, did God really say, don't eat of the tree? Like he immediately starts to call into question, did God really say? And I think like now we're in our own lives or in our own experiences or what, what the enemy can do, how, how Satan can try to use that with us is he could be like, I mean, did God really say that you can never drink any alcohol? I mean, after all, you know, they drank wine in the Bible, so there's that. I mean, did God, re- you know, and so what he does is he starts to try to get you to create your own theology. That's essentially what he's doing, right? He was trying to get Eve to go along with his theology, right? Did God, did God really say? And he, well, he didn't say that, right? And that's essentially what—that's one of his tactics that we see. Another one that he, he says all in the same time is he tries to to get us to go along with the fear of missing out. Now, by the way, I could spend the entire time together talking about the fear of missing out. And and, and here's what I mean. What he says to Eve is he was like, listen, no, 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 no. If you eat of the tree, you're going to get knowledge. By not eating of the tree, you're missing out on knowledge. And let me just stick with, uh, sorry to stick with with the alcohol reference, but Bud Light, for example. And you see this, the fear of missing out is a classic marketing uh, tactic, okay? It's a classic marketing thing, right? If you see a commercial for Bud Light, Right? Bud Light wants to, you to be convinced that if you pick up an 18-pack of Bud Light on your way home, when you get home, there will be 150 bikini-clad friends of yours. There will be a, a smoke machine and a laser light show at your house. That's essentially what Bud Light is trying to convince you when you see their commercials. They're trying to convince you that you are missing out. Nissan. Nissan says, unless you are driving the newest Nissan Maxima, you are missing out, right? BMW, the ultimate driving machine, right? If you're driving a Honda, Honda, an old Honda. No, 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 no. You are missing out on the ultimate driving machine, right? That's the ultimate, this is essentially the marketing tactic. That's what this is, is the fear of missing out. And that's exactly what the devil does to Eve. He says, no, 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 you're missing out. So you'll have knowledge about things. You'll be like God. You'll know everything there is to know about everything. And he tries to create the fear of missing out. And I'll bet if you look back over your life, and if you consider some of the not-so-good decisions you've made, you'd probably see yourself, you were in a season where you had a fear of missing out, right? And then another thing that we see, another, another tactic of the enemy is in Matthew chapter 4. Uh, this is right after Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. And he, he, he goes into the wilderness, and this is where Satan tempts him right? And a couple things that happen here, we see a tactic by the enemy. Uh, first thing he does, of course, is, is Jesus is hungry, right? He's been fasting, so he's hungry, and so what does Satan do? He says, well, turn those rocks into bread, right? And he tempts him with a fleshly need, a physical need. He says, well, just t- turn those rocks into bread, and what's, what's really fascinating is that... Jesus quotes Scripture at that point. His response to this temptation, by the way, from the enemy is quoting Scripture, and I'm going to come back to that. Well, then, of course, uh, so the, Satan says, well, that's not going to work. So then he tempts him in a different way, right? And uh, he, he takes him up onto a mountain. He takes him up onto the temple and the mountain. He takes him up onto the mountain, and he says, everything you can see can be yours if you just recognize me as being most powerful. So essentially what Satan says to Jesus. He says, everything you can see. He tempts him with what he can see, with what we lust after with our eyes. So first he tempts him with lust of the flesh, and then he tempts him with lust of the eyes. And the other thing that he does is he takes him up to the temple and he says, throw yourself off of here, because after all, you have angels that will protect you. And he tries to, to get him to essentially, he says, you're untouchable. I mean, you're Jesus. You're unstoppable. And, and what he's going after is he's going after pride. And the reason we know this is because John would later write in 1 John that there are essentially three things in this world that we have to battle with, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Isn't that so crazy that when we look back at how Satan was trying to tempt Jesus, it's the same three things that John told us about in his letter, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Do you see what I'm saying, like, about how this, 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 this collection of writings, you know, it's a book, it's a collection of writings, it's a collection of actual documents. This isn't just kind of a thing that a bunch of dudes got together and kind of built. It, it, these, these are actual documents put together into this collection. I hope, you, I hope you know that. I hope you understand that. There's so much in here, and we get to see the game film, so to speak, right? We get to see the enemy in a game, his strategy... His tactics, his offense, his defense. And by the way, if you'll notice when Jesus is tempted these three times, what his response is, his response is always to quote scripture. I don't know, if you're looking for a tactic, if you're looking for a strategy, if you find yourself in a moment of weakness, you find yourself in a moment of temptation and you're looking for a tactic. See, this is the reason why we try to tell kids to do what? Read your Bible. Pray every day and you'll grow, grow, grow. One more grow, okay, right? That's why we do this. I mean, can we just be serious? If, if Jesus quoted scripture as a way to overcome temptation, I, I, we not adopt this as, as, a, as our own strategy, right? So I want to tell you a story about a guy, about a king. His name is Hezekiah, He was the king um, in Israel, but I kind of want to set the stage a little bit because if you're anything like me, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're good. I understand, you know, Jesus born, ministry, water, wine, Lazarus come forth, dies, all that stuff. Yeah, I'm good with that. When you start talking about... Books in the Old Testament. Some things can get a little confusing. I think there was a guy named Ezekiel, or maybe Isaiah, or Jeremiah. I think they did some cool things. Like some of the stuff in the Old Testament, it can really start to get a little confusing. And, and if you've studied any of it, you know that that timelines and chronology and orders of events they kind of get all they can get confusing. And so I, I want to set the stage for who this guy King Hezekiah is. All right, so after the nation of Israel, they leave Egypt. Bondage, right? Moses leads them across the uh, Red Sea and they get to the promised land and they get there and they're having a good time. Life is actually going pretty well. They're in the promised land. They've divided up all their lands into the 12 tribes. So we get the 12 tribes of Israel. They all got 12 different areas of land. And they finally, uh, they they serve under the judges, right? So this is where we get Gideon and Samson and different judges are kind of their spiritual leaders for a while. Well, then all of a sudden Israel's like, we want a king, we want a king, right? And then God's like, it's just not a good idea. And they're like, we want a king, we want a king. And so God says, okay, fine, I'll give you a king. Um, Just as a side note, be careful what you pray for, right? Sometimes you get it, right? So they say, we want a king, we want a king. And so they get a king. And... uh, and then, so their, their first king is Saul, and that doesn't really go too well. But then David comes along, and, and, and the kingdom is, you know, really thriving under David. And then along comes his son Solomon, right? But it only takes us to get to three kings before things kind of turn sour after Solomon. Solomon builds the temple, and, and things are just going well. And then after Solomon, we end up with a the split. There's the northern kingdom, and then the southern kingdom, Right? So essentially what happens is this one guy says, I'm going to do this one thing, and then everybody says, nah, some people say, I don't really like that, and they end up splitting. And we have like a a divorce, so to speak, of the kingdom. And let me just stop and tell you right there, the devil loves divorce. I have had a front row seat for many divorces, and they are terrible. The devil loves them. They're destructive. They're painful, right? I know they have touched every family in this room. I know they have. And I'm telling you, the devil loves them. He loves that destruction. I think think about a guy, uh, James Dobson, Dr. James Dobson, right? He started the ministry focus on the family, I don't know, 50 years ago probably, maybe even longer than that. And I think about how wise he was because he saw... He saw how the enemy would be attacking our families more than ever, and he knew that a ministry like that was needed for focus on the family, right? I'm telling you, I I just want you to hear me on this. Um, Divorce is so destructive. It's so powerful. And uh, if you have it in your life, if if you've experienced it, if you've seen it, if you're like me and you've had a front row seat for it, I'm telling you, the devil, he loves it. And you can say, well, sometimes it's, you know, Sometimes people say, you know, well, we're better off when we're divorced and all that. I, I, listen, I'm not here to talk about that. I'm telling you the devil loves it because he's taking apart an institution created by God. He loves it. and He knows the power of divide and conquer, which is funny because that's exactly why we, I refer to the division of the kingdom as a divorce because all of a sudden now we have the northern kingdom and now we have the southern kingdom. And so these two these two nations they kind of you know go along in history together, and First and Second and Kings and First and Second Chronicles tell us the story of these two uh, parts of the kingdom or whatever you want to call them, and, and they're going along, and they have some things that they disagree about, and they have some things that you know that that, that they share in common and things like that, and so they're going along, and there's mainly or, or for the most part there are bad kings in the northern kingdom, there are. Some bad kings in the southern kingdom, but it's like good, bad, good, bad, bad, good, bad, good in the southern kingdom. But the northern kingdom is pretty much just like bad, 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 good, bad, 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 bad. That's kind of how it goes, right? And so the northern kingdom is, is, is just struggling. Um, essentially what they're doing is they just keep turning away from God. Another will come along. He will add another idol that they're supposed to. Um, a lot of idol worshiping is going on. That's one of the big things that the nation of Israel, the, the northern and the southern kingdoms, what they're battling with is just who to worship, how much to worship. Is it just Yahweh? Is it other gods? Is it this microphone? Just, you know, kind of they're struggling with. Well, all at the same time, there are at least three other nations in the area that are also in power, that also have some power. So to the south side is Egypt, to the north side are the Assyrians, and out east is this group called the Babylonians. All right, so there are these groups, and they're all kind of doing their thing, and they're all kind of, you know, trying to be uh, powerful, and they're all cr- trying to gain control or whatever. And here we are, we find ourselves in 700 BC, 700 years before the birth of Christ, and now we have King Hezekiah. And King Hezekiah is dealing with the Assyrians. They have actually already gone in in the year 722. So if you remember, when we're talking about before Christ, we actually, the numbers go down. So in 722, the Assyrians have already gone in and taken over the northern kingdom. Which is really fascinating, by the way. Pastor, you you talk about this a lot. God gives the nation of Israel lots of opportunities to repent, to come back to them. But here's what I know, and here's what I've heard someone say from this stage. Eventually, your choice of sin, it's going to be found out. It's going to be opened up. It's going to be made public, whether it's by you or it's by God. And that's one of the reasons my pastor is so passionate about calling you to the altar, right? Because either you come down here and you deal with it, or you keep fighting and you let God deal with it. And so what he, God, does to the northern kingdom is, and the Bible teaches us this, that he essentially used the Assyrians as one of his tools to punish the northern kingdom, to teach them. Like I said, the southern kingdom, they're kind of holding out a little bit longer, right? They've had some good kings. They've still tried to go back to God. Hezekiah has done some good things. And this is where we find ourselves uh, in the story. The Assyrians have already come in. They've taken over the northern kingdom. So, of course, what's next? southern kingdom. They're they're coming for the southern kingdom. They're coming for Hezekiah and his kingdom, the Assyrians are. And we find ourselves, we're in Isaiah uh, chapter 36. And essentially what happens is the king of Assyria now sends his chief of staff, his like number two or three, he sends him to Hezekiah to head straight to the palace and says, deliver this message to Hezekiah. And essentially the message is, we're coming for you. So we find ourselves in in chapter 36, verse 6. We're in chapter 36, verse 6, and remember, the king of Assyria has sent his chief of staff uh, to Hezekiah to deliver this message. And I do want to tell you this, what essentially Hezekiah has done is he has made an alliance with Egypt, which is really funny, by the way, if you remember the history, they were in bondage to Egypt not too long before this. And then all of a sudden, here they are running back to Egypt to say, hey, we need your help. We need your help, right? And Egypt, by the way, is not the power that they were back when they had Israel in bondage, right? They're not the same power that they were. They're just not as strong. They're just not as much of a presence in the area. And so king, the king of Assyria, I'm going to call him the king of Assyria because his real name is pretty complicated. I'll probably have to pronounce it at some point uh, during tonight, but I'm just going to call him the king of Assyria for now. He essentially sends this messenger and he's saying, listen, you're in a bad way and we're coming for you. Look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. And I picture it to be like a walking stick or like a cane. If you can imagine, the top of it is pierced, and so if you go to lean on it, or the the top of it is split rather, like a reed. And if you go to lean on it, what happens? It pierces your hand. What powerful imagery this man is giving! Because remember, he's trying to convince Hezekiah and all of his military leaders and all of his people: you need to just give in. You need to just give up, and you just need to let us come in and occupy this area and take over your land. And he says, look who you're leaning on. Look who you're leaning on. They're gonna piercing your hand. Verse 7. But if you say to me Oh, sorry, we'll go back up and let me finish verse six. I didn't even finish verse six. So if Pharaoh king of Egypt, so is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all who trust in him. Now let me just stop right here and say. Um, what he's doing is he's he's calling um, calling to attention their alliance. And I'm going to ask you that same question. I'm going to steal uh, one of his questions, actually, and use it. Who do you have an alliance with? Who do you partner up with? Here, here's what I mean. That person at work, every week they have something else to complain about. Every week there's something else to complain about. The schedule is this, the boss is this, the upper management is this, the pay is this, the hours are this. Every single week they're looking for you to jump on their bandwagon of the complaint of the week. Who do you form an alliance with? Who are you partnering with? Right? Cuz that's not that that's not the road that that's not the road to abundant life. Because that person is just going to change. with the t- There's just, They're, they're, they're going to be mad next week at something else. And what you're going to do is you're like, yeah, I'm with you. Let's do it. Let's, let's go complain. Let's go tell somebody. Let's go do something. And here you are. You've locked arms. You've made this alliance. My question is, who do you have an alliance with? Now, the messenger, right, he's saying this. The king of Assyria is saying this through the messenger to, to tell them, listen, you're leaning on a, you're leaning on a walking stick that's going to pierce your head. And these, this actually is... Pretty wise words, right? But if we look at it, the enemy could also do that. Let's keep going, let's keep going, let's keep going. Verse 7. But if you say to me, We trust in the Lord our God, is it not He whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, You shall worship before this altar? See, notice what He does. He was like, well, if you think it's God has told you that you need to, you know, we trust in the Lord our God, I mean, Hezekiah, your own leader, he started to make some changes to the kingdom, he started to make some changes to the palace, I mean, should you really be relying on him? Does he have God's favor? And let me tell you this, Pastor Neil Nolan gets up on this stage, from this pulpit, and talks about his personal life, talks about the things that he's said or the, things, the decisions that he's made. And you know what the enemy wants? He wants you to question whether he should be your leader or not. <sighs> do you know what Neil Nolan has done? Have you heard about the things that he has done? And you're going to follow him? You're going to listen to him? Right? Do you hear how the enemy can do that? He will. He'll do that. And we're going to come to, I'm going to keep going. Let's, let's keep going. Uh, yeah, verse 8. Now, therefore, I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you're able, on your part, to put riders on them. Verse 9, how then will you repel one captain at least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? See, now he's making promises, listen, I'm going to send my army, I'm going to send my horses, I'm going to send my chariots. I mean, you are going to be strong. See, the enemy, he makes these promises, doesn't he? He loves to make these promises about how he is going to make you better and he has absolutely no desire to do that. Verse 10, and this this is so powerful right here. Have I now come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it? What he's saying is, do you really think that I would come here without the Lord God on my side? Remember, this is the enemy's messenger coming. Do you think I would come here without the Lord on my side? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. See, and this is one of the tactics that I want you to be familiar with. He pretends to be an agent of God. You see that? He pretends to be an agent of God. If you, in fact, if you go back to Genesis chapter three, you'll see that the serpent essentially did the same thing. He said, okay, God told you to eat of the tree, because, but let me tell you why. Let me tell you what'll happen if you do eat of the tree. See, you're actually gonna gain knowledge. And you'll gain power. It's almost like he's trying to elaborate on what God said. See, God said this, but let me, let, me, let me paint the picture a little bit clearer. Well, no, no, no. There's a reason why God said don't eat of the tree, because he knows that that knowledge is dangerous and destructive. But you see, the serpent, he, he, he masks and disguises himself as an agent of God. But let me tell you this. You don't need an agent of God. You don't need an of God, you don't need a proxy, you don't need a liaison, you don't need a stand-in for him, the veil was torn, and then when the veil was torn, you gained uninhibited access to the Lord God Almighty, right? You don't need an agent, you don't need, now listen, I'm not talking about somebody standing in intercession, I'm not talking about that, of course, right? I'm not saying you can't have someone praying on your behalf, but what I'm saying is, you don't have to, it's not that you have to have this agent, right? We can get it directly from him, all right? And the enemy wants you to think that you should go through him, right? And so, um, let's go to verse 14. Let's go to verse 14. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. And that goes back, I just want to make sure I reiterate, I want to go back to that, right? Whatever spiritual leader you're using, whether it's Pastor Nolan and it's other people in your life, right? The enemy will try to tell you they are not equipped, they are not perfect, they're not the ones that you should be following, right? They don't know what they're doing. If you follow them, you'll end up doing the same things that they do, right? The enemy does not want you to follow a godly person, right? All right, so they return to Hezekiah, the, the messengers of Hezekiah. So if you can picture, they're standing at the palace doors when this happens, right? And the messenger from Assyria has come, and he knocked on the door, and Hezekiah's royal kind of crowd comes down to hear this message. There's a scribe and a historian, which is how we know that these things happened. So they receive this message from the messenger from Assyria. And I'll tell you what, they, they're pretty bummed. I mean, they're they're pretty overwhelmed. I mean, that's an overwhelming message that he has just brought to them and said, "We're coming for you, and there's nothing you can do about it. And your leader, you shouldn't even be following him anyway. And this is of the Lord. God already preordained for this to happen. And in fact, it's important for you to understand that at the time, there was this mentality, there was this psychology that land had its own uh, God." And essentially, people believed that if this land invaded this land and defeated them, it was preordained by God that because this God had, had already gone in and defeated this God. So if the name of your God was Section 4 God and the name of your God was Section 3 God, Section 4 God had already gone into Section 3 and defeated their God, so it was just natural for this, for this uh, nation to come in and defeat you. That was the mentality. And he was using that. He was using that psychology to try to convince them, just give up. Just give up and give in. So they returned to Hezekiah uh, to tell him what the messenger has said. And... In fact, uh, they lose uh, their confidence. They essentially say, we, we, we should probably go ahead and give in. We, we really probably should. I mean, he said it's of the Lord, so we've got that to deal with. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sure some of them on their way back up the stairs are like, yeah, did you hear what Hezekiah said the other day? We probably shouldn't be following him. Yeah, I know. That's what he said. You can kind of hear this, and the, you can hear their confidence is starting to kind of shake or whatever, right? So they come to Hezekiah, and they give him this message, And this is where I ask you another question. Remember I asked you, who do you have an alliance with? Well, let me ask you this. Who do you get your counsel from? Um, (laughs) Let me just share one story. I I don't even remember what it was that I was arguing with Terry about. I don't remember what it was at the time. In fact, it was so insignificant that I can't even remember. It was silly. And uh, and I remember I, I called a buddy of mine who was not married, not domesticated in any way. He was a single guy, and he was going to stay a single guy. And I was just venting to him. And that was a terrible idea, right? Because here's a guy who's like, marriage and all that stuff. And I'm just venting to him. I don't even know what I was frustrated about. Like I said, it wasn't even important. And I left that conversation. This has been a long time ago. And I left that conversation saying, what are you doing? Why would you call him and vent to him? And he's like, yeah, that's why I'm never getting married. Right? Who, Who do you seek counsel from? Because here's what's cool about Hezekiah. His... His people come to him and they say, um, "They say, listen, this is, this is not good. The news is not good. And he says, I want you to go to Isaiah the prophet. I want you to go to Isaiah the prophet. And so they, sent, so he, they go to Isaiah and they're like, Isaiah, here's what's going on. And so now we're going to go to 37, chapter 37, verse 6 and 7. And we're going to see what Isaiah says. Isaiah says uh, in 37, 6 and 7, he says, I'm going to have them. Uh, I, I don't want you to listen to their words, 37, 6, and 7. Isaiah said to them, thus you shall say to your master, so tell King Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. I just want to tell you this. If nothing else, I want to tell you this. You know what, the, you know what God is trying to tell you? Don't listen to him. Don't listen to him. Stop. Stop listening to him. S-s-s- Stop letting those words echo and echo and echo and echo in your mind. In fact, what the Scriptures tell us is we should actually take these thoughts captive. So if we have thoughts, right, Scriptures tell us to take these thoughts captive, which is kind of a weird thing, because we would think if it's bad, we should not bring it into our camp, right? We should keep it out. But the Scriptures tell us to keep it captive, and the reason why is because we can then check it against this right here. We can actually pour that thought through these words and it'll get cleansed. And it's like a a pool filter. Eventually, we're gonna find out if it's the good stuff or not, right? And so then in verse seven, verse seven, surely I will send a spirit upon him and he shall shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. And I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. You know what God's saying? Listen, these enemies are gonna take care of themselves. Don't listen to what they have to say. These enemies are going to take care of themselves. If you remember the story of Gideon, Gideon was the one who had an army. He was going to defeat the Midianites and he had a bunch of soldiers, got the best soldiers, or he he just got a bunch of men. He said, here, have a sword. Here's a shield. We're going to attack. And God said, no, 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 no. Fewer than that. And eventually when it's all said and done, Gideon has how many? Yeah, he's got 300 of soldiers that he takes with him. He takes them down there. And they don't even get swords. What do they get? Lanterns, glass jars with mud and a candle in it. And Gideon's like, what is going on, right? And eventually what happens is, is there's such confusion in the enemy camp. What do they do? They kill each other. That's exactly right. The enemy destroys themselves. And so here's God telling, uh, sending through prophet, through prophet Isaiah, listen, don't worry about the enemy. They're going to destroy themselves. And so meanwhile in all of this, the king of Assyria hears that the nation of Israel, that Hezekiah, is not going to comply. And the king of Assyria, in in all of his arrogance, he's fighting on another front. This is what's crazy. He's fighting on another front, part of this battle, taking over people and defeating lands. And he hears this from, of course, his messenger, from his chief of staff, and he says, go back and talk to them again. And I want you to tell them something else. And so we pick it up in 11, 11 and 13. So they go back, they go back. And here's what the messenger says from Assyria says to them, Look, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands by utterly destroying them, and shall you be delivered? Verse twelve. Have the gods of the nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed? Gozan and Haran and Rezep and the people of Eden who were in Verse 13 Where is the king of Hamath the king of Arpad and the king of the city of Serevam, Hina, and Iva? Essentially what he's saying is he's saying, we've defeated all of them. What makes you think that you can survive? So now he's giving them a list of all the conquests that they've had. I can tell you this. Um, I have casually followed New Spring Church and their story for several years now. Many of you are probably familiar with New Spring Church. It's a church that was started down in Anderson by a guy named Perry Noble. Well, sometime last year, yeah, last year. Um, they went through a pretty difficult season is what I would think. Um, when they're founded, he was uh, struggling with an alcohol dependency and uh, some other things were going on, and he left the church, and they went through this kind of this big ordeal and all of these things. And I'm not here to talk about Perry Noble and all of that or what he did or didn't do, and, but I will say this. The enemy will use that, has used that as much as he possibly can. And, and and what I'm talking about for me, for example, is as I move toward ministry. If I can destroy Perry Noble, I can destroy you. You see, you see, you see what the enemy does, right? I mean, that guy started a church of forty thousand. So he clearly knew what he was. You know, he he obviously had a great relationship with the Lord, and we took care of him, didn't we? What makes you think you're so special? Right, The enemy would love to remind you of all of the things that he has destroyed. Um, I know somebody very close in my life has always said, I'm not getting married, and the reason why is because one out of two uh, marriages end in divorce, so why should I even bother? The enemy loves to remind you of the list of destruction because what you naturally would want to do then is put yourself on that future list has already destroyed all of these other lands, right? Where are their kings? Where are their lands? Their gods didn't protect them. What makes you think your god is going to protect yours? See, and this, is, this, this could come into your life. Like, you want to start a new business. Like, you want to venture out onto your own and start a new business. And the enemy is going to say, remember the last time you tried that? Remember the last time you did that? You were a total failure on that. Like you want to, maybe, maybe you want to step out of your, your, your current job situation and start a business because maybe you can be in the ministry in a different way that you want to be. I can promise you the enemy doesn't want that and he will do whatever he can to remind you of the path of destruction and he'd love to put you on that path. And so 37, uh, chapter 37, verse 37 and 38, what's really, really fascinating about this right here is that what has been told to us then comes true. So there, okay, there's the word. There's the king of Assyria. Sennacherib, King of Assyria departed and went away, returned home and remained at Nineveh. So he's off fighting on this other front and eventually he goes home. Now it came to pass as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, lowercase g, that his sons, Adramelech and Sherezer struck him down with the sword. And sure enough, destruction comes from his own house, right? we already had seen this. The prophet had already said this is what was going to happen, right? And they struck him down with his own sword. So chapter 38, we're not even gonna to go to 38. I'm just gonna tell you what happens in 38. Hezekiah becomes sick. He's very, very sick. He's actually, he's dying. He's on his deathbed. And essentially, the, the prophet says, the, the, your, your, your time is done. And Hezekiah has a moment a moment of weeping and a moment of prayer and he begs the Lord to spare him and the Lord does and he gives him 15 more years. Right? We don't really have much of an understanding about what happens during those 15 years but boy, we have short-term memory sometimes, don't we? Because chapter 39 is so powerful in what happens. So Hezekiah um, he's home. He's hanging out at the house. And essentially what happens is we get a knock. He gets a knock at the door. And it's a couple of guys from another kingdom. And they've come to wish him well and say, we heard you were sick, but now you're doing well and life is good. We're, we're really, really happy for you. Um, we're going to go to 39 too. They're like, we're just, and he's like, oh, well, thank you so much for coming by. We really appreciate that. And he welcomes them into his house. Does anybody know where these guys are from? They're from Babylon. And he welcomes them into their house. He says, come on in. I'm so glad you came to see me. So glad you came to visit. Let me show you our kingdom. Let me show you all the things that I've done. Let me show you all the things that we've built. Let me show you all of our riches. Let me show you all of the things that we've done and all the things that we've collected. Let me show you my accomplishments. And Hezekiah was pleased with them and showed them the house of his treasures, the silver and the gold, the spices and precious ointment and all his armory, all that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. See what happens. This is what's crazy. The enemy is going to try to get to you using words. He's going to try to get to you with even stronger words. I didn't even tell you. If you go back and read, you'll find out that that king of Assyria's messengers, after he gets done having this personal conversation at the door with the the royal uh, people for Hezekiah, he actually steps back and he yells to everybody, listen, everybody, listen up. Assyrians are coming. We're coming to invade this place. You don't stand a chance. So not only does the enemy like to have a one-on-one conversation and whisper into your ear, Sometimes he'll just stand back and he'll start shouting and he's telling you destruction is coming and you better get ready. Oh, and by the way, that leader you've been following, he's not doing anything for you. You might as well turn and walk away. And if none of that works, guess what the enemy gets you to do? Invite him in. Right? The enemy will do everything he can to poison your mind. And if he can't, guess what? What? You're going to order direct DirecTV. I'm not hating on TV in general. Don't get me wrong, I'm not. But I'm telling you, you know as well as I do. Watch TV for five minutes and you're, you're filling your mind with something that you don't need to fill your mind with. I'm not a TV hater, I watch TV. But you've got to grab that remote and turn the channel. Because... What, what happens is, is we just invite him in. And this is what Hezekiah does. And this ultimately is... Okay, this is repercussions until today. The nation of Israel is still trying to recover today from this. Which, which makes me sit down on this whole idea that you understand this is... A- history. This really actually happened. These are real documents, real real historical information about what happened. And I'm telling you, the nation of Israel is still fighting to recover as a result of what happens right here. Because we go to verse (laughs) 6. And so Isaiah hears about this, and he's like, wait, 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 what did you do? Are you kidding me? Did you, you really brought them in? What did you show them? I showed them everything. (sighs) And he's like, you've got to be kidding me. Why, why would you do that? Why would you bring the enemy this, in this close? And the enemy we're talking about is Babylon. Because in a few short years, Babylon will invade Jerusalem three times. And the third and final time, the temple is destroyed and the nation of Israel is carried off into captivity. Isaiah says, behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. I mean, it's got implications for years. Somebody who occupies this stage talks about your legacy and your children and your children's children and here's Hezekiah, in his moment, and see, and this is it, and uh, this this is it, and I'm done. In his moment of pride, in his moment of allowing himself to be vulnerable, I don't mean vulnerable in a good way, like when you're sharing with someone and you're going to kind of be vulnerable. No, I'm talking about leaving yourself vulnerable. It exposes your area of weakness. He's so proud of his kingdom. He's so proud of his accomplishments. He's so proud of all the things that they've gathered together, all the things that they've done, and all of their riches. And he says, come on in, boys, check it out. And you can just, you can just, you can just hear him. Like, you know, one of the guys from Babylon, he's just, he's just taking notes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Security system, check. Cameras in the corners, check, mm-hmm. Oh, that much gold, check. He's taking an inventory because they're just counting down the days until they can be there, until they can take over. You, you, listen, you've got to know what the enemy is doing. You've got to know what the enemy is doing, right? And that's the thing. We can, we can talk about, we, we, we're better equipped to understand what Jesus did on the cross for us when we also then are better equipped to push him back. Right, because what we have to be very careful is that we don't just come in here and hear a message and be like, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, amen. And we walk out of here with absolutely no tools for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Amen. And so I think that's also, by the way, let me just say this about vulnerability and, and weakness, is the armor of God. That's why the armor of God is such a cool thing. Because if you think about it, when, when knights were fighting in armor, what were they trying to find? the point of weakness, that vulnerable point, right? Maybe it was like the back of the leg, or you know what I'm saying? Or maybe it was the side, you know, with the armor, maybe where the chainmail would kind of separate. Because of course, it had to have room for expansion. And so they would look for a point of weakness. And sure enough, Hezekiah shows it off. Will you stand? Will you stand? I've kept you over 10 minutes, and I am so sorry. But what a cool story. And what a cool man, or what an what a, what a, what a int- amazing thing we can learn from this man, Hezekiah, and all the tactics of the enemy. I, I asked you a couple of questions. I said, who do you have an alliance with? Um, remember, the enemy pretends to be an agent of God. Who do you get your counsel from? Right? And uh, also, that the enemy is looking to remind you, you know, of the, of the path of destruction. Right? So maybe you can consider where your area of weakness is, consider where the enemy is coming in. Maybe it's, maybe it's direct TV, right? But somewhere, somewhere, you might be letting the enemy in or letting his, letting his words get to you. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this opportunity to come together tonight. Thank you for the uh, opportunity to preach this message, Lord. Oh, thank you for the, the scriptures, Lord. Thank you for this, this document that we can, we can turn to that was breathed... Uh, into existence by you, Lord. We know that um, we know the word and we know the word and we thank you so much for that. Lord, I pray that, um, that we're challenged by these questions, Lord. I pray that I'm asking these questions of myself as we leave here, as I go into my work week, Lord, that I'm asking these questions of myself. This isn't something, Lord, that I just try to drop in the laps of those that were seated here. And tell them good luck. Lord, I pray that I'm challenged by these questions as well. Lord, I pray that we consider all these things. We ask these things in your name. Amen, 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 and you are dismissed.